Welcome to Take It From Us with host Kent Johns. Real people, real voices, real lives. Discussing mental health, addiction and disability in the community. Your weekly window to the real world. Welcome to Take It From Us. Take It From Us, welcome into the program. I uh, hope you're going okay, hope you're tracking well. How was Easter? Are you thinking, ooh, overdid it again? Feeling a bit, ugh. After a few days of, of overindulgence, it can often be the way, can't it, after Easter? So I, I hope you're all right. You haven't gone too hard. Holidays, lot to look forward to for those of us that are parents. Can be pretty tough, can't it? Pretty challenging time when you're looking to juggle a whole lot of different things. It might be that you're working from home. Um, we, we know that we've we've still got all of these different kind of boundaries having to be artificially set up in our lives at the moment. And then you throw on the school holidays, it might feel a little bit stressful. So I wish you all the very best. It's no different in our house. Little girl will be away from school for a couple of weeks. My goal, my focus is to limit the distractions. I want to set myself some good boundaries each and every day to make sure that I get to spend some time with her and that it's quality time and that we do some daddy-daughter time and that we just hang out and we talk. And dad, i.e. me, is not being distracted by cell phones and laptops and messages and everything else. On my focus, you know, and it's easier said than done, I know, is to spend some quality time with my little girl over the next couple of weeks. So if you're parenting throughout the school holidays and you're juggling some work commitments and and, and other family commitments, I do wish you all the very best, and together uh, we can try and have some fun in the next little while. On our program today, we'll talk to a couple of people at the Drive Recovery College who have designed a series of workshops to empower ourselves by encouraging us to reframe our own stories. Looking forward to hearing about that a little bit later this uh, this afternoon. We'll also talk to Gavin Finlay from the New Zealand Food Network on how they are sourcing and redistributing food to the most needy in our community. It turns out a hell of a lot of food in New Zealand goes to waste, but we can be doing better with it. We'll hear from Gavin a little bit later as well. Uh, But first up, our guest is a man called Dan Oatridge. Uh, Dan has lived with mental illness for a number of years. Uh, He is a suicide survivor. He's a mental health advocate and now is a mental health first aid facilitator for a company called Human X. What is it that a first aid facilitator does? We'll hear from Dan about that. Looking forward to his story uh, and also for him joining us on the program. Dan, it is very good of you to join us on Take It From Us. What are you giving the most thought to at the moment? Oh, top of mind. Um, I guess, you know, my kind of bread and butter at the moment is uh, looking after ourselves, looking after the the top six inches up there. So, um, I mean, I guess things that are on everybody's mind at this point in time, things like COVID, things like red lights, things like, um, Mm. you know, I guess self-care and that kind of stuff has been quite, I don't know, popularised lately as well and and quite, you know, talking Mm. about a fair bit. Yeah, well, we we know the importance of self-care. Is is there any one or two things in particular that you do to look after yourself? Uh, There's a few. Look, it's, it's, I guess the... There's the image or the impression that self-care is something that I do um, to reward myself, you know, after a busy week or something, and mm. I'll, I'll have, you know, that coffee or I'll have that beer or I'll do whatever. Um, for me, self-care is something that I need to do, like, pretty much every day. Mm. Um, and for me, that involves waking up at about 4 a.m. with anxiety in the belly, uh, not so easy to roll over and go back to sleep, so I'm, I tend to get out of bed sort of 4, 4.30-ish, sit around or kind of prepare myself and then I'm off um, running down Queen Street down to the bars for a, for a swim, jump in the pool, sort of 5.30ish and um, go for about half an hour, 45 minutes in the pool and then get back out, run home and um, that gives me a, a nice um, solid foundation to, to start the day, a nice clear head. Mm. What's the difference with your head if you don't do that? Um, way less motivation, just way less. Um, I mean, for starters, like, um, if someone has, um, if you are experiencing, you know, depression, um, especially can be quite debilitating and quite fatiguing. So just getting out of bed can be like a really difficult thing. And that, and that can be 
Um, there was about two weeks where I I didn't really get out of bed other than to like maybe go to the toilet or get some water or something and then just get back into my little like insular little black dark pit, you know, of, of bloody sorrow or something that I was just wallowing in. And, um, you know, like that's, the, I guess for me, um, one of the more important things is to get out of bed um, and to stay that, that can be, uh, you know, not every day, but um, getting up, jumping down the pools is a large part to helping keep me out. Um, what I also, what it also does is, um, I don't know if, if you're much of a swimmer, Kent, have you ever been up 5.30 in the morning down the pool, <laughs> in the pool? I, I've never, I've never formed that intimate relationship with yeah. a thin black line and I, I don't intend to, Dan, if that's all right. I know, uh, I know one of your former, uh, radio sport colleagues used to, um, talk about staring down at that black line a fair bit. Yeah. Um, and, it's not an easy thing to do. Mm. Um, it's really difficult. And so I sort of look at it as like, well, you know what, if I can get out of bed and if I can run down to, to the pools and I can get in that pool and do it the lengths, like that's probably one of the hardest things I'm going to do that day. Um, and if I can do that, I can do whatever else the day is going to throw at me. Um, so, yeah, it's like a nice little, um, I don't know, like reset, mm. start, start fresh. Um, I do my, you know, the exercise, I'll jump in the sauna or, or the steamer for, for 20 minutes as a bit of a, a reward and then um, you back up mm. and then whatever else I've got to do, you know, come home, eat, mm. do whatever else I've got to do. Really interested in what you're doing now and, and the way in which you're helping people running suicide prevention workshops. We'll get to that shortly. But first up, what's your story? Tell us about your own lived experience and the journey that you've been on over the last decade or so. Okay. Um, so <clears throat> um, where should we start? Where should we start? <laughs> I won't go back too far. Um, so I, I guess prior to uh, – I, I was diagnosed with anxiety and depression, um, what are we, 2022, like 2015-ish. Um, it had sort of been a little bit there, runs in the family. You know, there's that kind of genetic link as well. Um, but I started to really feel uh, the pinch of, of anxiety and panic attacks. Um, I was working in retail assistant manager, um, and I just found one, one day, um, driving to work, I just started sort of my, my heart started pounding. I was like sweating. I couldn't get like enough breath. I was like, Ooh, this is, this feels real bad. And yeah, you know, I, I kind of, I don't know, I thought I was coming down with something. So I kind of turned, turned around, went, went back home, um, jumped into bed, thought I was tired, you know, need a bit of a sleep, you know, shut the old blinds and, um, what I found was getting up the next day, I didn't feel any better. Um, and so I'd get up, get ready for work, get in the car, drive down, get to about the same point, massive panic attack, turn around and come home. Um, and so that went on for about two weeks um, when I was basically, um, would get up, get ready for work, we'll sort of be fine, get to a point in the drive and just start freaking out and um, and just just... I was going to die to get out of there. Like I was literally felt like I was going to die. Um, and as uh, anyone who was a, a frequent panic attack experiencer, they'll say that it, it, you, you feel like you're going to die. And so um, that happened for about two weeks. And then basically like it got harder and harder, um, like, you know, you calling in work, popping at work. Um I didn't tell my partner for, for a large part of it, which was really bad and probably just sort of spiraled me down a bit further. Um, and, and you know, eventually kind of had to like, look, you know, I, I need to fess up and, and sort of tell you what's going on. And um, so I kind of struggled through like trying to, um, trying to go to work with, with those kinds of feelings and um, to, to no real avail. Um, Near the end, or, or probably a couple of months before I had my um, sort of panic attack, I put my hand up to do a an, a, a company wide initiative, um, New Zealand and Australia, where to have like some kind of mental health first aider or, or um, you know someone who people could go to if they are experiencing that kind of stuff. You're having a rough time, stress, 
you know, stuff at home, whatever. Um, and so because I had a bit of a history there, I put my hand up for it. And um, the the funny thing, um, so now I'm sort of delivering these these workshops to, you know, 10, 20 people sometimes, sort of, you know, 15-ish. And um, back then it was, uh, I was signed up for it. Um, and they only needed like three other people to actually get the workshop to mm-hmm. go. At this time, the, the, the workshop rights were held by the county's Manukau DHB. So it was sort of community-based um, workshops that were free for the participants, but obviously, you know, the DHB flips the bill and everything. So um, to make it viable, they needed four people, and I had signed up. So for about three months, this workshop got put back and back and back because we couldn't get, like, three other people to sign up. Um and now that you now you know for three or four years later, you got like twenty people signing up. You can see how that um, how much more well known these these workshops are getting. Anyway, um, <clears throat> so I sort of left and, and went through about eight months um, of just I was in a really bad spot. I was um, wasn't really eating properly, wasn't really sleeping properly, I wasn't exercising properly. Um, I was withdrawing from all of my family and friends. Um, you know, my partner, so you you sleep, you know, in the same bed, but you feel like you're, you know, that kind of cliche, you feel like you're miles away. So um, that kind of culminated one night. At, uh, my partner was away um, and I was in a particularly bad space and um, I'm not going to go into any real details or anything, um, but I, it, it was a, a time, um, what I sort of, how I like to... Mm describe it was that I made two decisions that night and one was the worst decision I've ever made in my life and one one was the decision which is the reason why I'm allowed to be here to talk to you so um, I uh, once I had stopped doing what I was doing um, I basically cried my eyes out for about three hours I mm-hmm. bawled my eyes out I wailed um, like I've never like I've never cried before and um, all I could really think of was like, man, like I felt really ashamed. Um, I felt really weak and no, I'm not, I'm not, um, uh, like I'm not definitely not calling anyone these, but I, I felt like really sort of embarrassed and was just like, man, um, my parents would be really like really disappointed in me right now. Um, so, you know, I guess, you know, different reasons why people do things or don't do things, but, um, yeah, so I now um, I try to help share some of the. I mean, I I learned a lot. Um, I made a lot of mistakes, and so I know kind of uh, maybe like the guide to overcoming um, <laughs> you know mental illness or something. Like, here's everything to do that you could possibly do wrong and I'm pretty sure I did a lot of it um, but you know things that I did have was things like have a really strong support system and a really awesome partner and um, you know really understanding parents um, and you know like a, a, a lot of people around me that really care for you and um, yeah I guess the more you get into like learning about mental health mental illness you realise that um the support system is so vital for recovery mm. and um, yeah. Well, look, we really appreciate you sharing your story, Dan. Um, you know, I know, I know it's difficult for you, but now that you've been able to take your own life experience and kind of upskill to the point now where you're a mental health first aid facilitator, you're in this position to actually help people and educate all of us. What does it involve? Um, well, okay, so, I mean, practically, um, mental health first aiding is really not much different to physical first aid. Um, so what does, I mean, what does mental health first, or, you know, let's say physical first aid, uh, I'm walking down the street and I come across someone with a broken leg. Um, I'm not a doctor. I, um don't have the steady hand or the temperament with blood to be a doctor. So I can't really do anything to help actually fix said injury. What I can do, though, is call the ambulance 
And what the ambulance does is they come to this person, they pick this person up, they make sure they're okay, they take them to where they're the experts are uh, who can reset that leg or can uh, do whatever it, it needs to be done. Physical, uh, uh, mental health first aid is much the same. Um, we don't teach you how to become a therapist or a psychiatrist or a psychologist or um, you know, a GP or anything like that. But what we do train you up on is to uh, recognise um, signs and symptoms, red flags, uh, and then how to approach that person. Um, you know, what do I say? When, when do I go up to talk to them? What do I, you know, like what am I allowed to say? You know, a lot of people might want to help, but they're terrified of offending somebody um, and, you know, in this day and age. So there's that kind of apprehension there. Um, but we can, you know, we help you learn how do we direct this person? Um, is there other help that's available to them? And then how to get this person to um, to said help? We also, um, so the the, I mean, we talk about, depression, anxiety, um, psychosis, and substance misuse. Um, there's been a, been a few other additions to the workshops since Tepo have picked up the rights, so the, uh, the DHB um, decided not to renew it or whatever, and, and so Tepo have picked it up and really kind of revitalised it. Um, they're a, like a training zone. Um, so... We talk about depression, anxiety, um, substance misuse and psychosis, and then we look at um, signs and symptoms, uh, how to, um, you know, I guess, how to, how to have the, the, the difficult conversation or the brave conversation, um, mm. you know, are you okay? Um, and we look at uh, crises that might be involved, suicide, suicidal thoughts, suicide attempt, um, Maybe there's, um, you know, panic attacks with anxiety. Um, you know, psychosis could be things like schizophrenia, um, mm. things like that. And how to, to recognise signs and symptoms. Mm. And how about suicide? Pro- arguably, probably the most delicate topic yeah. we could ever broach with, with anyone that we're close to. How do we do that? <laughs> Mate, it's tough. Um, so... We talk, uh, um, I guess, without sort of running through the whole thing, um, being direct, if you are... There's a bit of a common misconception um, that if I ask someone about suicide, they're gonna, I'm going to put the idea in their head and they're going to run off and kill themselves. And guess what? It's going to be all my fault because... I put the idea in it. Uh, what we found, and when I when I say we, I mean people who are way smarter and <laughs> way more better, you know, doing this. And I, uh, what we have found, I'll just take, I'll just take, you know, the, the plaudits for all their hard work. Um, is that it doesn't really happen. Um, it, it's I sort of look at it as from the um, the view of like if I am worried about you enough to ask if you are feeling suicidal or having suicidal thoughts, there's a high possibility that thought's already in your head. Um, and I'm not going to put it there. Um, and not asking can lead to the person sort of feels like they're alone, you know, and, you know, we don't really know. But what asking can actually lead to is the person, and, and I guess think about, like, you might be the only person who's ever asked this person if they're suicidal. Um, and for a helper or for a carer, um, hearing the answers to those questions can be really tough. So we sort of jest or recommend like three questions or three actions. If, if um, you're worried about someone that they're suicidal, ask them. If them, be um, straight up about it. No waffly mm. nonsense. Are you having suicidal thoughts? Um, have you been? Th- have you thought of killing yourself before? Have you? Um, have you gathered the means? You know that you have you got a plan? Have you decided how and when? Um, those questions um, let us know the sort of imminence of 
whatever this person is thinking about um, and how kind of um, how deeply they've thought about it. You know, if someone's going to plan together, like a how, a why, and a when, like they've put a, a bit of thought into this. Um, so that would let me sort of think like, okay, this is, um, we, we really need to get this person to help like right now. Um, and it might sound strange that um, not everyone who experiences suicidal thoughts actually needs like to be rushed to hospital or, you know, needs to be, um, you know, crisis team to come and, and, and help them out. Um, it might sound a little bit weird, but, you know, a lot of people have suicidal thoughts that don't actually intend to do anything about it. So um, one of the, um, I don't know, the, the pitfalls of the human brain, I guess, but yeah. um and the third action there is if we have had like, yes, I am suicidal, yes, I'm thinking to be myself, um, we stay with that person. And we stay with that person until we can find another contact or family member or, you know, person that can, can stay with them um, as well. So we, we don't leave them alone. And um, we try to connect them with help as quickly as possible. Um, and that's not always easy. Dan, we all have to be hopeful, right? We all have to hang on to hope, all of us. What are you most hopeful for in your life? <laughs> um, I really hope that um, people start talking about this stuff a bit more. And I know we are um, talking about it a lot more. Um, but it's, you know, it's a, this is a real thing and, it's, and it, it really affects real people, um, which may sound a bit strange, but, um, I mean, I would love, I would love for some kind of, um, lightning in a bottle moment where we, you know, you can take this pill, you're good, carried on. But, you know, uh, thinking about it a bit more, like, you know, my anxiety kind of, you know, like it's me. Like I'm not, I won't be defined by my mental illness or mental health challenges. Um, but if I didn't, ha if I didn't operate the way I operate, like maybe I wouldn't operate the way I operate. If that makes any sense. So um, I guess a lot of the the perception is that like mental illness is this terrible, horrible thing that you know rips families apart and sees you know people killing themselves and all that kind of stuff. And yes, it happens, hundred percent, and it's it's awful. Um, but what I would love through our mental health work, uh, first aid workshops is to, um, I think HumanX had this goal of like adults trained by 2030, something like that. So, you know, if we can get something like that going, there's a lot of knowledge out there and there's a lot of experience and there's a lot of people who are, um, there's a lot of people who are feeling really alone, mm. Mm. really alone. And, you know, I guess if there's one thing that I could say to them is like, you're not alone. You, I'm right there with you. Um, talk to somebody. Doesn't yeah. really matter who, um, but keeping this stuff a secret or, or holding it in just kind of makes the... Um, I mean, for me, I either explode or implode. <laughs> so I either have a crack at someone else or I just go fully insular and, um, and just ignore the rest of the world. And, um, you know. But it's so, it's so simple, but it's such a powerful message that more people have to, have to, to get it. You are not alone. Yeah. Anywhere you can turn, there is help there. It's, and there's help just a matter of looking for it, I mm -hmm. guess. Um, but yeah, man, like. But at some time, am I right though too, Dan, to say it, sometimes it's on us to ask someone if they're okay? Absolutely. And, and that's the, a large part of, of what, um, you know, we, we train as, as a person who's in that kind of space may not be aware of what's really even going on around them. So definitely, um, and like the worst thing that could happen is someone say no. No, I'm not depressed or whatever, you know. Um, but it's it's um, friends, family, you know, work colleagues. Um.
from us. It's a bit of a classic, is it not? David Bowie with Heroes. Let's talk to a food hero on our program. Uh, let's get in Gavin Finlay. He's the chief executive of the New Zealand Food Network and also Kiwi Harvest to talk to us about how they are sourcing food and then redistributing it to those in need given the enormous volume of food that is wasted in this country, it could get to more worthy causes. So, Gavin, it's great of you to join us on Take It From Us today. I imagine off the back of Easter, you've been relatively busy recently? Uh, Yes, we are. I mean, obviously, the last couple of years has been uh, really challenging for many, many Kiwis throughout, uh, throughout the country. And, you know, Easter, Christmas, the, these celebratory times mm. just kind of exacerbate people who are struggling, you know, big time to put uh, a decent uh, plate of food on the table for themselves and their families. So, um, yeah, we, we were able to kind of, kind of to really ramp up a little bit more um, than we would normally do to try and get as many people, you know, just feeling as normal as they can in terms of, you know, having that mm. food security. But it's a challenge. Where do you source the food from? Oh, many, many areas. Um, most people wouldn't kind of understand or realise the volumes of surplus food there is in the country. As a society, we've kind of generally gravitated towards the demand for both perfection and choice. And when you've got those two things in the mix, you're inherently going to have a huge amount of surplus because if you choose not to have something, it's it's surplus. If it's not perfect and you don't use it, it's surplus. So what do you do with all this surplus? There was a, a stat going around that, you know, New Zealand produces enough food to feed 40 million people. And yes, we are an export country and a lot of it goes offshore. But there's a lot of surplus produced that's wasted. For whatever reason, given our kind of commercial uh, environment and that, that, that we live in, um, it can't be sold for some reason. So what has happened in the past? We'll just throw it away. We'll just throw it on landfill. We'll just create greenhouse gases up the yin About 10, 15 years ago... Um, Certainly, Kiwi Harvest started 10 years ago, but we were about the second or third food rescue, uh, as as it's termed, service in in the country. It was kind of realisation that that is such a waste. And there are people who are struggling. Mm. I mean, I've been here, I'm a a kilted Kiwi. Mm. Uh, I've been here 27 years. I like that. I'm 27 years here. And and in general, the, the she'll be all right attitude kind of pervades through our society. So when you say people are struggling and can't feed themselves, most Kiwis would go, really? Mm. Surely not. Surely we don't have poverty because I think the the essence of what most people would pres- presume to be poverty is a, a kind of a, a, an African image or a you know a slum image in South America or Asia, mm. but that's not the case. It's it's a hard whole for a lot of people um, in New Zealand right now just to exist and survive as you would expect someone to do normally. So yeah, Easter kind of exacerbates that as, as being is supposed to be a celebration. Yes, it's a Christian celebration, but um, for some people it's just another day. Well, I wonder too, with, with food prices going up, as they are, people are probably going to find themselves in a position where they can't buy as much. Would we be right in thinking, therefore, that the oversupply will only become exacerbated? We might have more food that is being wasted at this time. Not really. You would think that. But unfortunately, with the global supply chain issues as they are, and you'll have mm. seen you know, up and down every now and then, and when you even go into your own supermarket the shelves aren't quite as stocked as they would normally be. And that's purely because goods aren't moving. So New Zealand Inc.'s food bank has shrunk down a little bit. So in terms of that normal surplus that we were talking about, um, that's actually reduced. Mm. So um, at Kiwi Harvest, we, we collect a lot from supermarkets. That's reduced down because there isn't just the volumes of, of, of um, surplus available. One of the other um, 
areas that we do uh, get food supplies actually donations. So um, there's a lot of really, really good engaged companies, uh, food food companies in New Zealand that we work with uh, at the at the Food Network, who kind of recognise that Kiwis are struggling, and actually as part of their philanthropic giving or their corporate social responsibility, actually donating food uh, to us. Um, and then on top of that, the government have, over the last sort of six to 12 months have gone, actually, we do realise that people are struggling and, and one way which we can help is leveraging the New Zealand Food Network's um, skills and capabilities in working with the food sector to procure food at a really, really good good rate. So they've really supported and helped us um, to do that and get a lot of that food out in the community. So in general, food surpluses, food donations and food purchasing is kind of where we get our bank of um, of supplies to, to get out into the community. And how do you do that? How do you get to the needy people? The great thing is we've, um, we've got about a core of about 75 organisations up and down the country who work with the front line. It's almost like a kind of hub and spoke model where we've got all these what we call food hubs all around the country who've got great reach into the community, either to smaller organisations or directly to the public. And that can be anything from the big the big players in terms of the Salvation Army and the city missions, right down to um, women's refuges, refugee state uh, organisations, schools, community groups, food banks, EV organisations through Marae, a whole raft of organisations that are actually dealing directly with those people who are really struggling. Um, landlords won't give you free rent. Petrol companies won't give you free petrol. Mm. Phone companies won't give you f- free phones. Power companies won't give you free power. Supermarkets won't give you away food. But the one thing that we can do because of this food surplus mm. is use our logistics network and those organisations right at the front line to help those at least get food on the table. Mm. So it's a really big collected effort. If you kind of think of us as large and long, so the New Zealand Food Network is a nationwide organisation working in big bulk product, transporting it all around New Zealand. And then the food rescues and other organisations are small and short, so they take that bulk product break it down into smaller amounts to give out to the community groups who then give it out to the people. Mm. So it's, it's, quite a, it's quite a challenge, but yeah. um, there's a lot of really, really good committed people up and down the country um, because it's one of the three basic things that humans need. You need food, air and water. End of story. Mm. You don't need, need cars or you don't need television. They're, they're good things to have. But you ain't going anywhere without any food in your stomach. <laughs> or That's exactly right. To drink or, or air to breathe. So. What can we do? How can we help? I think it's just, uh, there's a number of uh, different things. It's one, look out for your own. Understand your own environment and, and, and to know if people are actually struggling. Because I, you know, I grew up in, in, in Scotland in the, kind of the, the late 60s, early 70s, in, in which time, you know, there was a lot of power strikes and coal strikes. And I remember, I look back on those days, and I think that must have been a real, real struggle for a lot of a lot of families who had no income, nothing. Uh, power cuts all over the place, going out having to acquire some food from the natural world, <laughs> you know, in terms of pheasants and rabbits and stuff. It's, you know, I kind of look back and I think, what, what were my parents thinking like when they've got no food to feed the kids? And, and people are like that in New Zealand. So that's a, that must be an awful burden to bear. So I would say look out for mm. your own and see mm. if you think that may be the case. Um, and reach out to try... There's a... Uh, I think that the Ministry of Social Development have got a website called, I think, the Family Services Directory. And in there, they've got a lot of raft of support services by region. Um, and and food, food support is one of them that you can actually go on to to see if you've got a local um, 
<clears throat> organisation, food rescue or food bank that can support and help. But um, yeah, just keep an eye out for people. That's that's what I would um, advise. Thanks, Kevin. Look, appreciate your time. Thanks for coming on the program, and please, you know, keep up the good work. You're doing great stuff. This is Take It From Us. Real stories, real life, as told by you. Kevin Finlay, who is the Chief Executive of the New Zealand Food Network. If you wish to contribute, if you can help in any way, that'd be great. Uh, get on to Kiwi Harvest. You can uh, fire them an email, kiwiharvest.org.nz. Take it from us, and we're now talking with a couple of peer support specialists from the Drive Recovery College. Uh, these guys have created a series of workshops on what it means to empower ourselves by changing our own narrative on the way we view our lives and experience. Uh, let's meet them. Uh, let's bring in Ruth Cheeseman and Jason Anthony Bryars to take it from us. It's so good to have you both on the program. How are you both doing? Good, thank you. Hi, good morning. Very well, thank you, Kent. Thank you for having us here on this station today. Now, look, it's our pleasure. Um, Ruth, tell us about the program and what it is that you're hoping to achieve. Well, this, um, this program is about people using their story um, I'll, I'll let Jason explain the actual content of that. Yes. Um, so thank you, Ruth. So um, are the amazing workshops that myself and Ruth have decided to co-facilitate and create together is all around writing and weaving our stories into a way that they are empowering for us as individuals, but also as a collective of people who are healing in their own recovery journeys and in their own ways. Um, for me as a writer, I find writing to be a very powerful tool to alleviate whatever's in my mind and as a way to demonstrate to people that recovery is possible. Um, and that's how I can illustrate that. Mm. Jason, that's perfect. Thank you, Ruth. Anything you'd like to add to that? Because I'm sure there's, there's a lot more. <laughs> I just think that our stories are our precious tanga, you know, and um, we've come through our own recovery and to be able to share them is such a gift. Exactly. I totally, totally talk about that, Ruth. Um, our stories are a gift to be shared and to be honoured. And let's, let's do that with this project. Why not? Yeah. <laughs> so tell us, Ruth, as far as identity goes, where, where, where do a lot of us really struggle, do you think, with our own identity and expressing that? Um, I think sometimes stigma. Um, you know, the, the stories that have been told against us and against ourselves, you know, the things that we tell ourselves, we have to be able to move through that to, to really even have recovery. Um, and then once we've got recovery, um, a lot of those barriers actually fall away. Um, and some of them might just be um, doing something like that, like learning actually how to express ourselves in, in writing in such a way that, you know, we've empowered ourselves and also empowered our readers. Exactly. Yeah, that's a beautiful answer, Ruth. It's it's almost in essence a way to. I just had the perfect wording. I forgot. <laughs> um, it's, it's a way to hold a mirror to yourself, almost, and to actually like reflect the world that and your experiences back at you, and and to uh, and to how they have actually impacted you on a human level, on a day to day level, because I think. A lot of the time, I know in my personal experience, when people think mental health, they're just like, oh, there's no, just Jason's really sad all the time. And yeah. it's more than just being sad. There's a lot of factors to it and what I've been through. And so by having a vehicle such as writing or using that as a catalyst to express all of the layers of experience, of emotion, of thought, yeah. it's inside my mind to me, if I can get that out, it's going to keep me safe, it's going to keep me healthy, but it's yeah. also going to demonstrate to others that recovery is possible, but it's up to you to figure out what that's going to look like because it's very, very important to know, Kent, that no recovery of any individual is the same. Mm. Everyone's recovery is different. And wouldn't you? Yeah, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I couldn't put that better. Yeah. yeah. Thanks, Jason. And uh, Ruth, will you be encouraging people to put down all of their thoughts or is, it, is there a focus more on positivity, optimism, gratitude or is, is it really cathartic to just let it rip, so to speak? Well, for the purposes of this 
training. Um, it's about weaving our stories um, to be empowering, so to ourselves and to others. So um, the the other sorts of writing are absolutely awesome too, but we've just narrowed it down to this for the sake of, of this project. Yeah. And, and I think just adding to that as well, it's we are welcoming people to come and share their stories in its entirety. However, we've been very mindful as the way in which we do it. So we've been able to, very fortunate enough, find a piece of framework which allows us to protect our writers that do choose to participate. And we've fully stipulated that and be made aware that whatever is put out as a final product of this because mm. we would love to publish a book of stories, stories of, mm. um, of recovery. Um, we want to make sure that each individual writer feels comfortable publishing this right now, in the present moment, but is also going to be comfortable in the future when they've done their recovery, when they're now in their normal, every day-to-day lives, because, you know, we can do anything these days and... I would hate to have someone publish something about themselves and then regret it later on. So mm. that would be very much an important part of our protective framework to protect our folder and the people that want to engage because we want genuine engagement, but at the same time we want to protect the people who are participating mm. and actually allowing their vulnerability to show through. That's absolutely right, Jason. Yeah. yeah and we had a very, very in-depth discussion on the phone about that yesterday, didn't we, Ruth? So, we did. Yeah. 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 So where, where would you like to go with this program? Are you, are you thinking big and bold and um, <laughs> like as a visionary, Jason, Anthony, about reaching as many people as you possibly can with it? Most of for me, um, being a writer, coming from a writer's background and trying to establish myself, yes, big and bold, we are, I was talking to my psychologist yesterday and I was like, I've had so many doors shut into my face. I'm sick of it. I'm going to go to the window and just jump out and do my own thing. You know, think outside the box, go as big and bold as we can mm. to reach as many people in different areas or different services, whether that might be hospitals or could be even like, you know, you think about barbers and hairdressers, they're mm. therapists as well. So if we could yeah. get a book uh, that's just one example. There's so many more avenues of which we could use this book and contextualise it in real life. Plus, also, by distributing it to the national libraries across New Zealand, I've just had the pleasure of meeting a librarian, and she told me how to get a book into the library. All right. So, like, it's big, it's bold, it's bright. I'm. That's how I am as a writer, as a character, as an individual. I want to our stories and to be heard. And it is my hope that this is just the first volume of many to come. And I hope that's okay with you, Ruth. <laughs> dream big, dream big, yes. yes, yes yeah, exactly. there's lots of people who need to hear our stories. Yeah, and, and I mean, you know, for me, if someone hears us on the radio station, they're like, oh, my God, I really want this. Like, I've been trying to find something like this. Then mm. it's obviously going to be really exciting to engage and participate alongside of them. Ruth, how has has this this form of writing helped you in your own recovery? Well, to be honest, um, Jason is the expert here. Like, um, I've always enjoyed writing, um, and mm. journaling particular particularly has empowered me to just look at what I'm thinking from a sort of slightly outside or external perspective, and then go back in to to, mm. to where I'm at. So that's been incredibly empowering for me. Um, but I've, my journey has also been about empowering others to write, also. So that's been part of my background and work is to is to do this kind of thing of this work. Um, but Jason is a published author. Yes. Almost published author, guys, almost. I'm, I'm working on self-publishing my first book um, later this month or possibly next month. It's titled Crossing Through the Figure Eight and would love to be able to share some work with you if we've got some time as well. Mm. Go, look, the floor is yours. Oh, thank you. Oh, my God, I'm really excited. Don't know what to share. Uh, I want to keep it appropriate for this space, so I might choose to share with you Chameleon. Um, I know I did share a bit of poetry with you last week. Save that little gem for later on. Um, give me one moment. Um, so my book that I'm publishing later this year, the first title is called Crossing Through the Figure Eight. Um, 
It is a written reflection of my own personal journey of mental health and recovery and also through some, um, you know, PTSD stuff mm. as well that I've been through. It hasn't been easy, but I feel, I always tell my at the moment, I feel like I'm living through my poetry. There, you can see the um, stages of the journey in which I go through coming from like this, uh, for a term that I'm using. And, and one of my poems is like the winter of my life and, and learning to, to grow through that and trying to nurture myself, even though the world around me is quite harsh and cold, mm. bringing that to me as the essence of I can control the world around me if I sort of choose to or take that power back and I thought that was quite a nice analogy of then using the idea of a seed and then kind of going from there. I think I'm waffling. <laughs> mm. <laughs> oh my god, and so that yeah, any one moment I'm not very well, multitasking. <laughs> well Jason Anthony finds his poem Ruth, how how can we get hold of you guys? Well, the best way to do it is to go through the Drive website, which is just one word, drivedirection.org. Um, and, and on there you can search for Recovery College, and, and that is the direct link. So you can actually register online from there. The, um, the eligibility criteria is that you must live and work in Counties Manukau. And Recovery College um, operates in partnership with Drive, and it's peer-led education on recovery. Mm for mental health and AOD, alcohol and other drugs. Thank, thank you. Thanks very thank much for that. We, we've got... cool. I'm ready to share when you guys are. Away you go. Free, but I'm going to go with my figure eight. This is on for the book, so let's go back. Figure eight. The journey is just a figure eight for me to decide my point of grace. Am I serene in my handmade heaven or dwelling in the illusions of my personal hell? The journey's just a figure eight, carefully balanced. Am I growing with intention or wilting to survive, tending to the garden of my mind? Recall to pull the weeds and turn the soil, cultivating energy for my own peace of mind. The people and places Habits which no longer serve me, relinquished to the ether. The journey is just a figure eight. My thoughts are leaves drifting along a stream. Without judgment, they pass by endlessly. I am comfortable. The journey is just a figure eight to find my equilibrium and take direction of my fate. I'll surrender. I'll surrender. Entirely. Come what may. I'll take the gondola down the stream in a straight line, no longer pulled to your figure, crossing the centre one last time to reach the side upon banks where authenticity awaits. Inside the rose garden, you will find me. So, for me in particular, that poem, that piece is about moving away from all of the things that comes down in that, that same kind of circle or figure eight that we just go round and round and round and it's not until you you finally have that conversation with yourself, look, I've, I've had it, this is enough. I'm deciding to take back my power and cross through everything that keeps me hold down, pounds down, and to overcome it yourself on that other side upon those banks where the mm. rose garden is and I just, rose gardens are beautiful I, I align myself with nature very much um, so you'll see that throughout the book there's, there's a lot of nature elements or calling back mm. to oneself and finding the authentic person and, and the humanity again after such distress or trauma mm. well lovely way to, to finish Jason Anthony and thank you so much for sharing that and yes. Ruth thank you for joining us as well and we wish you all the very best with the program
that is You Learn by Alanis Morissette from the Jagged Little Pill album that sold a gazillion copies all of those years ago. And man, if we had to learn, haven't we, eh, in the last couple of years? Karen, who's today's Sheldon shout-out on Take It From Us? Well, Kent, um, well, we've been in the orange alert level now for a few days. And um, I guess I'd just like to give a shout-out to all the hospitality uh, owners, uh, owners of businesses, cafes, restaurants, clubs and bars, and all the workers and their customers that have done mm. it tough over the last few years, haven't they? And um, it's great to see that they're getting back into it. People are out enjoying themselves, and a bit of life is coming back to our cities and our towns. So uh, just a shout-out, particularly to the owners and the workers, I guess, just for you know, getting through some hard times and, and hopefully they've come through and, and yeah. enjoy some more good times in the months and weeks ahead. Well said. Yeah, and they need our support at this time. I uh, hope you have a great Anzac weekend. Of course, Anzac Day is this coming Monday, so we've got another lo- long weekend to look forward to. Make the most of it. Uh, I just want to thank uh, Dan Oatridge, uh, Gavin Finlay, Ruth Cheeseman, Jason Anthony Bryce for our, being our special guests on the program today. Thanks to Karen Murphy, who's put the show together. Remember, please leave us a comment on Facebook, facebook.com get to the Take It From Us page and leave us a comment and a note and we will look forward to corresponding with you very shortly. Those were our stories from our people this week. Have a great week. You've been listening to Take It From Us with host Kent Johns produced by Karen Murphy, executive producer Andrew Dewhurst made with the real stories and voices from our community and for that we thank you. For more information on anything you've heard on today's show or for direction on where to seek further advice or assistance, visit our Facebook page. Take it from us.